Hey guys, it's Charles. Are you a lazy millennial like me who doesn't have the time, energy, or work ethic to actually read a book? If so, you're in luck. Head over to audibletrial.com slash settingedge. That's audibletrial.com slash settingedge to get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash settingedge. Reading is for chumps. We're going to episode 46 of the Setting the Edge podcast. I'm Justin Mosquito. You can find me on Twitter at J1MOSQ. I'm here with my co-host Charles McDonald. You can find him on Twitter at 4Verts. We're here with a very special guest from Football Guys, our good friend Matt Wallman. You can find him on Twitter at Matt Wallman. Say what's up, people, Matt. Hey, man. It's great to be joining you guys. Uh, you guys have been doing a great show this in the past, what, six, eight months now, maybe longer than that. I've had a chance to tune into a couple that have been just really fantastic. So it's nice to get on to sh- shoot a little bit, you know, and talk about the NFL. Yes. I'm blushing. I'm oh, blushing right I know. now. That felt good. Uh <laughs> But today, we're just going to run through some of some questions that you guys had uh, about week one, about football, fancy football, uh, the nitty gritty. So we're just going to dive right in. And the first question is from uh, Demetrius at Demetrius Hall talking about the Brown Steelers game from Sunday. Was Sunday's Brown defense based in repeatable habits, uh, or did the lack of pressure come? Oh, excuse me. Was Sunday's Browns run defense based in repeatable habits, and did the lack of pressure come from one-on-one losses? Justin, I mean, you know that's interesting. Oh no, you can go ahead, Matt. Okay, I mean, you know, that's interesting. I I can tell you this. I'm actually scheduled to watch that game a little more this morning. I've only seen the first quarter of it, um, so you know, to probably answer that one. Uh, unfortunately, that's the one game I missed this week that I haven't really looked at, and I'm watching it right now. So that's that's one that I can't really give you a great answer for. Uh, I will say I, th- I think that team is going to get a lot better when Miles Garrett's on the field because right now I don't really see like that guy as a pressure guy. I mean, obviously, Ogba is a player um, – you know they're getting more from from the depth that they have, just from the amount of bodies uh, that they've added over the past two three years on the defensive line. Um, but I don't really think that like, there's the guy right now who can get after the quarterback. The thing that honestly surprised me the most uh, was that Danny Shelton wasn't getting enough reps. I didn't realize until after I was done watching these games that Danny Shelton had some sort of health issue. That was keeping him out of the game a little bit. Um, but you're watching that game, you know, if, if you're not looking for Danny Shelton, you probably end up missing him, which is kind of surprising. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to miss a dude that size, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I, I will say, you know, that that's Pittsburgh's offensive line. Like, we, we talk about offensive lines, and sometimes we we don't name Pittsburgh in the top three, which is, like, borderline but they offensive. are. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, very much they are. Um, so... And it's not. And it was interesting too. Every week, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it was interesting too that in at least in the first quarter, what I saw was Williams mixing things up a little bit and playing a lot of off coverage that you didn't see last year from you know that different defense. And they were playing, you know, the corners were playing well off, and they were kind of baiting the Steelers into you know just running screens, you know, or short wide receiver screens that they the Steelers were just kind of 
uh, off, you know, kind of their timing was bad, but then the Browns were also taking good angles to the ball early on. In some of those instances, I saw Kindred make a, a pretty nice play on Martavis Bryant early on in the game. And so, you know, I, I am I can't wait to see what goes on there. And if they are taking on the, the Steelers defensive line and I'm an offensive line and playing pretty well and held up pretty well, that's a pretty promising sign for Cleveland, at least week one. How how do you feel about the potential of his offense just just for this season? Because uh, I know you haven't seen the game, but Corey Coleman had a, had a pretty uh, good game, and even though the final stats for Deshaun Kaiser weren't great, I, I thought I still thought that he played the pocket pretty well, and he just got to fix up some of these errant throws that he has. But overall, for the season, do you think that this could be an offense that takes a, a step forward? Yeah, I absolutely think they they can, and I think the thing is is that it's just they didn't have a, a quarterback who could bail that team out when the defense schemed them into a corner. Um, you know, Cody Kessler didn't have the arm to really do it. And I would say that neither Robert Griffin nor, you know, McCown were guys who were great in the middle of the field in terms of how they made reads and made throws, at least the way that their game was at this point in their careers. Um, and, you know, when you look at Kaiser, Kaiser got knocked on just completely unfairly in the in the pre-draft process about, you know, Brian Kelly threw him under the bus. And I just felt like that when you look at this kid, he's he's pretty mature. You can certainly see that he made some good decisions early on in the game from what I saw. And even bef- even in the preseason, you could see the pocket presence. I always thought he was very good throwing the ball to the outside, um, outside the hash. He, he was very accurate. He showed a lot of pinpoint accuracy in that range. And I thought he, and I think that that's something that, you know, if he can short, be a little bit better in the middle of the field, which is going to take him some time, you know, that will be excellent. But I'm, I'm wary of Kenny Britt. I just, you know, to me, I can't wait to see if Case and Williams or someone else that they've acquired, you know, Sammy Coates, I'm not feeling, but as an athlete, yeah, but. You know, Cason Williams could be an interesting guy, you know, after week eight, maybe, you know, where he's someone that gets familiar with the system and then they can use him on perimeter routes where I think it may be difficult for teams to stop this pairing. I mean, what he did to Xavier Rhodes um, in the preseason on some of these fade routes when he was in Seattle was vintage Cason Williams at Washington. And I think that, you know, Kaiser matches up well. They pair well together in terms of their skill sets. And I think with Coleman, you know, Coleman is certainly a talent and he just needed a year, I think, to acclimate. And, you know, to me, Britt's a guy that's, I don't know. I mean, I I was never high on that pick and we'll see if he he improves a little bit. But that's the same Rams team I remember that, you know, he's part of that Rams receiving core that didn't want to work with Jared Goff to study film during the year. Um, And that just tells me that, this is a guy that's continued to have questions about his professionalism and his ability to be mature on and off the field. And while he's maybe matured more off the field, um, I think that maybe this is a guy that, you know, continues to be just a physical talent with not much else to bring to the table on a consistent level. So Cleveland, I think, will get better as they as teams are, you know, have to let off trying to face trying to force um, Kaiser to throw when Kaiser can beat them and they show, you know, and defenses realize that they have to, they have to pay attention more to the passing game. You'll see a more balanced offense. And I think there's a greater chance of that happening this year. You've seen the rumors, right? About uh, Josh Gordon reinstatement possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You 
no. I mean, it's you know, there's a. I'm an I'm a I'm an idealist disguised as a cynic. So you know, I'm I'm one of those people that would probably say be very careful. But he's sitting on two of my dynasty um, fantasy rosters right now, and he's been sitting there for the past three years. I even oh, traded man. for him in one league. So it's like you know, he the talent's fantastic. We'll just see whether or not. You know his his specific issues can be something that he's overcome. The fact that he's still working at it it offers a good sign. And yeah, he's 28, but whatever. We saw what he can do. He's he's probably the the best physical specimen at wide receiver in the game when he's on the field, and he certainly knows how to play the game. When you can ragdoll um, a keep to lead, um, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, and. I, I'm with you. I still have I still have uh, Josh Gordon on, on three dynasty teams, and even last year in the pre- yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm, I can't I can't let go of that. Even last year in the preseason with with RG three, you still saw this guy's a big time player, and I, I really hope he gets another chance to get on the field. But uh, let's move on to the next question from Andy at Falcons underscore Andy for Matt. Who are some of the players you were surprised uh, the most that haven't been successful in the NFL? So guys, you like that that kind of flopped. Yeah, I mean, oh God, we could mention a lot of players that I probably felt that way about. Um, let's see, early on that list. Well, guy, you know, this has been a long time, but, you know, people joke with me about Cedric Pierman, who was a special teams performer with the with the uh, the Bengals, a longtime special teams performer. I thought he was going to be a really good running back in the NFL. Um, I, I really liked his vision. I thought that he had a tremendous stiff arm and after contact ability, he had great speed and he just never really, he got drafted late. The, the ball security issues have been an issue. Um, so that's one that, that bugged me. I could name a whole list of quarterbacks, but that's kind of like, you know, quarterback is such a hard position to evaluate in its, in its own right that, I mean, you know, you could, you could go, that's been a, a, st- a learning curve for me over the past 12 years. So, you know, probably half the quarterbacks I've evaluated, I could probably probably look that way. I felt like Jay Cutler had a more promising uh, opportunity in his career um, early on. And then the way that, you know, the the former GM for the Broncos talked about it on his show, you know, you could see that he was kind of mismanaged and, and repeatedly mismanaged. And it gets to the point that when you mismanage an employee long enough, and, and they don't get out of that industry or or don't have a way out. They be their talent gets kind of ruined in a way. They kind of become disgruntled and have a certain you know approach to things that you know doesn't work out. So that's one that I would say certainly was an issue. Um, gosh, um, trying to think of other guys that just really. I think that Amir Abdullah so far has been somewhat of a disappointment. Some of that's been injury, but I really thought the ball security thing was going to get better. So far, he, you know, this week he was a little bit better, but I've had to temper my expectations with him. Those are guys that right off the bat, you know, come to mind immediately. Yeah, I, th- I feel like, unfortunately, Todd Gurley, man, I, I loved him so much coming out of Georgia, and I, I don't know if he, he's going to be able to put it together at this point. Yeah, see, I'm I'm still I'm still hopeful. I thought that I thought the Rams, you know, I know it's the Colts defense, and I know that they had a lead, but you know, to me, when he gets when he gets a decent crease, he he breaks tackles. When you know, and when he has when he gets into that second level, he still looks like a lot like the Todd Gurley I remember seeing at Georgia, and he's it's just that when you get one, two, three guys on top of you 
you know, early on into a run, he's, you know, that's going to be an issue for him because he's not going to be able to out-athlete people on a level consistently where he's doing, you know, Tariq Cohen type of things in that huge body. He needs a run, bit of a runway. And right now it's a big question whether the Rams are going to be able to provide that for him anytime soon on a consistent basis. Yeah, see, that's the thing that's always weird to me because I, I know you've looked at these numbers that I've, I've posted before, but like the splits between uh, what what running backs essentially are able to get, like the percentage of carries that they get that go at least one yard beyond the line of scrimmage and then what their yards per carry is beyond the line of scrimmage, right? Um, I, I think yeah. those two numbers are very different because I think offensive line would skew uh, tackles for a loss percentage heavily, right? And if you look at what happened Todd Gurley's rookie year, is Todd Gurley was like the best running back in football when he once he gets beyond the line of scrimmage, right? Um, he still had right. a bad offensive line before the line of scrimmage. Uh, he was tackled in the backfield plenty often. Um, last year, his offensive line was actually slightly better. I mean, I don't want to say that it was it, say, saying it was better do, doesn't uh, doesn't give the backhanded compliment enough. Uh, to, to talk about what the Rams <laughs> offensive line was last year. But the issue was that beyond the line of scrimmage, Todd Gurley's effectiveness was basically gone. And if you look at his, I think it was uh, his rookie year, it was like 6.5 yards per carry. Uh, last year, it was like 4.5 yards per carry beyond the line of scrimmage. Um, and then this year, I think it's at like 4.4 right now against the Indianapolis Colts. And I think uh, between 15 or between 14 and 15 yards, um, which is basically where yards should are are equally as easy to get um, if you look at expected points and things like that, right? Like it's basically a linear line between the 15-yard lines. Um, no running back last week was tackled more in the backfield uh, than Todd Gurley was this past week. So I, I don't I don't know what the hell is going on there because it looks like yeah it looks yeah. like he's had a bad offensive line basically his entire career but he was able to work around it his rookie year and he's not able to work around it now and i'm just trying to figure out uh what the hell is yeah. going on because we're yeah. going into year three of this and if this continues through year four i mean i'm not i'm not sure if he's a guy who can even be locked into a contract that would suggest that he would be a full-time starter so here's my question with that because it's a good you know that's a that's that's a really good level of analysis when you're talking about the differences between, you know, year one, year two, and early year three. Um, you know, how would you account for certain contexts like, you know, the fact that, you know, they had a, you know, they had quarterback play that was, would you say that quarterback play was even more awful year two and year three? Or would you say that maybe also we look at the fact that, you know, defenses tend to early on, um, let the rookie do their thing because they they want to see the rookie prove what they do when they're matching up with players and they don't always look see film on a guy after about until about three to four weeks of scouting to compile what it is that the team is doing schematically to defend a guy to defend a certain guy and so when you look at maybe that rookie year maybe the onus was more on stopping the you know the the veteran players on that offensive side Whereas once Gurley became known for what he was capable of doing, you saw the dip in production at the end of the rookie year. You also saw the dip in production last year. And then on top of that, they had a, they also had a rookie quarterback. So, you know, at least for half the season at that point, and the teams were like, well, we stopped Gurley and we make golf prove that, you know, he can, he can run a West coast offense after transitioning from an air raid. 
And this year is kind of the same thing. We don't know, you know, we, we have golf. He's essentially learning and, you know, we have a new system with him. They've got new wide receivers. Maybe the communication isn't all that great in terms of pre post snap. Um, Cause that's the thing that takes some, takes some time to build some rapport with all the different types of reads that you would do. Um, and so let's stop Gurley first and see, and make golf beat us. Yeah. Is that, I, think that, I think that absolutely happened. I know when I went back and I watched every single Jared Goff throw and I watched run plays in between that, um, it was pretty easy to tell that like teams just full on did not respect the Rams on early downs when they were coming out with their two receiver sets. They basically, what they would do is they would just play man coverage against those two receivers say, you know, why are we dropping seven guys in a coverage? on these plays when we're not afraid of these receivers, let's man them up. We'll play with a high safety and then we'll just send exotic blitzes in the run game to the point where like, there is no gap for you to run through unless you're, you're pulling or doing something crazy where you're getting a one-on-one, like uh, you're adding another person to a side of the field on a run concept. I think that's one reason why it was super hard for top Gurley to run. Um, and it was one reason why I think the spread move for Los Angeles was the right move for them to make. And I, I, I think the spread move would have helped Gurley, but I think the numbers right now don't suggest that it has. So I, it's something to keep a track of uh, moving on forward for sure, especially considering the fact that, you know, we were talking about Indianapolis's defense and as, you know, not, not a great unit necessarily. So um, yeah, if, if those yeah. numbers and get worse against not the Colts, that, that certainly a uh, red flag to me. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we kind of have to wait and see is, you know, mm-hmm. can Goff prove that he can develop a level of rapport and confidence with this with this receiving core? Can the offensive line hold up against stiffer defensive fronts? And and can Goff make the appropriate reads and manage the game in a level where you know they can get some shots downfield and stretch the defense out a little bit more and eventually open things up enough that Gurley that the teams have to respect Goff. And if teams have to respect Goff, we'll see. Gurley's numbers go up, but if they don't have to respect them, you know, considering that we're no longer in a league when that I was growing up in, when you know seven three games were common or nine six games were common, and you could pound the ball and just wear out a defense, and you know you were a good running back when you know and when and when the media and analysts thought yards per carry was a great stat when they were averaging four point one yards per carry, you know, so it's like. It's a different time, and and Gurley is kind of a back, a lot suited for that type of time. If he was on a different offense, and I think Jeff Gisher wanted to be that kind of offense, but his he and the staff that he hired didn't do a good job of being able to really realize that. But a guy like maybe Tom Coughlin might have a fighting chance of being able to do so. If Todd Gurley were in Seattle with the well in a better line but you know what Seattle would like to do is to have that kind of Marshawn Lynch kind of pound the rock and let's be the counter to this NFL you know trend of spreading the field out and then defenses reacting by drafting guys who were more hybrid players and kind of lighter quicker faster you know more athletic guys but may not always take the pounding in place physically as tacklers against downhill runners and I think that's why Coughlin's trying to go that route in addition to, you know, Bortles. But I think that that's, you know, some teams are like, let's be the counter to that. If we can be effective, the 49ers were effective that way with Frank Gore during the Kaepernick era because they had, you know, they had a great line and Gore's a fantastic running back. 
And then you have, you know, the Ravens as well. They also had kind of a downhill running game that was very good when they got to the Super Bowl when Seattle beat the Patriots. Same deal. I kind of wonder uh, if the Colts could have like a sneakily solid run defense and that be the only part of their team that's 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 okay while the uh, while Andrew Luck is out. Because obviously their secondary is just, you know, with, without Vontae Davis, they don't really have any NFL caliber players. But just looking at, at their front seven, uh, Henry Anderson, Al Woods, John Hankins, John Simon, uh, John Bostic, Jabal Sheard, and Antonio Morrison. Like, that that's a team that could – that's a front seven that could be, like, a, 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 an average run defense, I think, this year with that has no pass rush ability or ability to cover the pass. But – I, that that was something I was wondering just watching that game because they do have some 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 solid run defenders or guys who have been solid run defenders in the past. So maybe they maybe they had a talent advantage in that department over the Rams offensive line. Yeah, we'll see. It's a good point. It's going to be fun to watch. I mean, that's to me. I mean, I know a lot of people are like, let's watch the big the big name teams and the big name games. But I'm always really fascinated with the the either what people call smaller market teams or teams that just aren't very good yet and see how they're developing. To me, that's some of the most fascinating storylines to, to watch and, and see. So, uh, you know, those are great points. Yeah. I have a question for you. Where are you or where is your head at so far with uh, some of these draft eligible quarterbacks? I mean, I know Lamar Jackson and guys like Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold have taken the stage, but who who's somebody that you've caught your eye on and that you really like projecting forward to the next level so far? Well, it's funny that you mentioned them because I mean I've I generally watch quarterbacks in November and start really studying them, but I've starting to I've watched probably ten of them fairly early on, which is more than what I usually do, and seen some m- multiple games of them. And when I look at this list, I mean. I got to just mention Jackson right away. To me, I, I think Lamar Jackson is head and shoulders above everybody else in this class so far. And I know that it's early and I still have more games to watch, but just watching him read the field and have the willingness to make aggressive throws that are the right throws to make and to manipulate the defense while the defense is in, you know, compressing the pocket and he has to move, reset, and fire. When Jackson has a set plan with his footwork he's fantastic he's dead on pinpoint accurate when he doesn't quite have a plan for how to use his feet to adjust that's when he looks wild but that's a common thing for a lot of quarterbacks he just has to learn it just shows to me that the things that he knows when he does three-step five-step drops looks really good when he can three-step five-step hitch or hinge and you know slide and, and reset looks great when he has to do these one step and fires or two step and fires and, and he hasn't created a footwork plan for himself and it's different every time and how he does it. He isn't Pat Mahomes in that regard. So that's kind of off for me. Um, you know, thus far I haven't been, you know, really impressed with this quarterback class beyond Jackson compared to this past, this past year, the 2000, the 2017 group. I think that, um, you know, a guy who's interesting to me, you know, maybe Mason Rudolph is interesting to me on certain levels because I think he does some good things to read the field. Um, in, in a lot of respects, he can read multiple progressions, but there are times kind of like Dak Prescott when I saw him, that, and that's a guy I definitely missed on. <laughs> Boy, did I miss on him. I saw so many 
that that one I need to come back to. I saw I'm kind of that's my problem is I know I miss on a ton of people, but when you scout players all the time, you kind of have a cornerback mentality when you get beat because you just learn from it and move on and try and forget about what happened. Because if you just think about it all the time, it, you, you're just like. You, you know, you you start overthinking things. You don't trust your process. But Dak Prescott was a guy who I saw so many little things with his game that I just didn't think quite worked out on a repeated basis that I felt like that maybe his timing, how he felt things and processed and put things together, just was one of those guys that physically very promising. And he occasionally made some really fine plays but I didn't think it all connected well. And I just saw, and he's a guy that I mentioned that I was like, if it all connects, he's like Donovan McNabb in terms of the ability to win in the pocket, but also to be able to make plays with his feet and also have the arm and the ability to really do a lot of sophisticated things as a passer when he's in his prime. But I don't know if it's all going to come together. There's just too many things. So when I look at Mason Rudolph, I kind of see not Donovan McNabb potential, but I mean, I see things where he he's a little off in his reads where he rushes one read when he shouldn't have, but then when he's, when he's really locked in, he can manipulate a defense with, you know, going through progressions and looking off. And then when he has time buying it and he just has to get his footwork a little bit more together in terms of when he makes some quick decisions from second to third read that he can reset and fire with accuracy. Um, so he's kind of interesting to me. Um, and so far of those quarterbacks that I've watched, you know, I, and then Rosen, I mean, I like Rosen. Um, I think there's, you know, he's got kind of that Matt Ryan esque type of, um, skill set to him, not a great arm, but a good enough arm. Um, he, but he's, he's very, he, he's, he's very reckless on a lot of plays yeah. and even that Texas A&M game, I'm just sitting there watching those throws and it's just cringeworthy um, to see some of the throws that he got away with. And I think that he's going to continue to try and do that because he, he has that hubris just because you're smart doesn't mean you're wise. And he is certainly a guy that hasn't developed wisdom yet. Yeah. I, I've, I love watching Josh Rosen just because like you said, he's reckless, but I, I think that, just as, from an entertainment perspective, that, that type of game can be a, a lot of fun to watch on TV. And I'm also rooting for him because he's, he, he seems like a good guy. Yeah, me too. And he's, you know, and when you, and here's the thing, people are going to knock him for this because it's going to come up a lot in the pre-draft. And let's just talk about it now is the whole reason why he wound up at UCLA. Uh, you know, I heard from a quarterback coach who told me, and this was before the story came out, but the story is well known now is that you know, among people who study the game, which is that he he wanted to go to Stanford desperately. That was his school. He really wanted to be a starting quarterback there. And they had an offer for him on the table. And the last meeting they had with him before they were going to give officially give him the offer um, and have him sign, he uh, he said something in there that just turned them off so much that they rescinded the offer. And it devastated him. I mean, that was what he really wanted was to go there. And he has said, I don't know exactly what he said, but he said to the media that happened. It's true. I said, uh, you know, what I said was probably, you know, I shouldn't have said it. And, you know, it was immature of me and I'm paying for it now, but you know, it happened for the best, but I've also heard that he questions coaches a lot and, you know, in certain areas, that's fine. You know, you talk to Ryan Riddle and Ryan Riddle talks about how that when he was a Cal, 
you know, that he would question his defensive line coach about things because his defensive line coach was basically reading books to, to learn the position. You know, it was not, he wasn't a player at, at that position and was learning that, that role. And Ryan would ask certain things and the guy was a stickler to what certain technique. And once Ryan could prove that he could do certain things that didn't fit the technique, the coach finally relented, but it was really in a, it's going to be on you if it doesn't work out type of thing, as opposed to just saying, yeah, I was wrong about that, but this is how I want you to apply this and make sure that you're, you know, you're being gap sound or you're doing the certain things that you need to do. And I think that Rosen may have turned off some of that mentality with, you know, UCLA coaching staff where they've lost some assistant coaches during his tenure because he asks real questions. He got into an argument with Trent Dilfer um, during in high school in a classroom setting during that ESPN thing, recruiting thing that they used to do with quarterbacks, and because he questioned a, a, a look or a, a way of approaching a, a defense that Trent Dilfer disagreed with, but. Dilfer later said, yeah, I mean, we got kind of heated about it, but Josh could probably do this type of thing and better than I could ever have done it. And he was right in a certain way as it applied to him. And, you know, you're going to need to have a coaching mentality that fits well with him, that understands who he is. And if he ends up with a, you know, a Brian Kelly type of coach, then, you know, as you see, I'm kind of pounding on him in this episode but that, that's fine yeah, free on, on Brian Kelly. yeah yeah I'm not a Notre Dame fan never have been but of course <laughs> I went to UM so I was a Miami guy so you know I like convicts over the Catholics so but the uh but yeah that was a that's the thing to me I just think that if you get that kind of heavy-handed personality who doesn't really work with his players and doesn't and it's like my way and my ego's invested in how I do things and much of the NFL is that way we could see some early sparks that are going to cause some controversy between player and team, especially if a GM isn't aligned with his coaching staff and decides we're going to pick Rosen and the coach he has is kind of a, you know, a hard ass who basically is inflexible. And then we could see some real problems. All right. Uh, last question before we get out, before we get you out of here, this has been awesome. Uh, it's from where was it? Oh, from Senor Carlos at LMJ underscore FF. Uh, have you ever had a hamburger that had cheese stuffed inside the meat patty, aka a juicy Lucy? And did it make America great again? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm two things I'll say. I mean, and of course, my hell no is probably because. I, you know, two things. I was a vegan for like nine years when I was in my twenties and I, I got rid of cheese out of a, out of a diet cause I was an active kid and I, and I certainly was, I did a lot of athletics in high school, but I also seemed to be drugged up on antihistamines all the time. And once I cut out dairy, um, most of my allergies went away. In fact, I mean, I used to have to get shots. I used to get shots and take pills like every day. And then you know, by the time I was in my early twenties, when I stopped doing you drinking milk and going vegan and at least avoiding dairy, um, it, it went away. So I'll say this, I'm not, you know, occasionally I'll have a, a hard slice of cheddar or, or Swiss on a burger and I'm good with that, but I don't want any exploding cheese coming, you know, that steaming hot coming out of my burger and burning my tongue. I just think that's just a dumb way to do it. Have it lightly melted. You're good to go. 
We need your take on eggs on burgers. How do, how do you feel about eggs on burgers? Because that, that stuff's trash. It gets runny and messes everything up. Yeah, but you know what? I don't mind messy. So, you know, it's like Indian food. You eat it with your hands. If you really eat Indian food, you eat it with your hands. Eat wings with your hands. Part of the enjoyment of certain things is it gets messy. And if you don't like messy sometimes, then you're just not living life, you know? So I, I to me, I'm all good with the egg yolk running down my wrist. And, and as long as I'm enjoying it and it's, it's well-cooked, um, you know, it's a well-cooked meal. And, and if that's what it, and that's what it is on the burger, I'm good. I'm down with it. All right. Uh, you have anything you're working on that you want to let people know about that's coming, uh, relatively soon? No, I mean, I can tell you what I just did. I mean, I did a, I did a piece on Leonard Fournette, um, at, at football guys at the gut check. And every week, every Monday I do the top 10, which is a basically a film based look from my Instagram notebooks of, of little film snippets during the games on Sunday. And I just stay up pretty much all night and watch as many games as I possibly can. And then write the column the next day and give you kind of my fantasy takes with that. And, but I will say be on the lookout with the rookie scouting portfolio. Um, I have some site changes that will be coming up in the next couple of months. And that will also include a newsletter for subscribers. When's the uh, film room starting to kick off RSP film room? Yeah, probably in a couple months. I think probably no later than November, and obviously I will be begging you guys to get on it. <laughs> All right, so Matt, <laughs> Matt I'm, calling, I'm calling my guy right now. If if he ends up declaring the guy that I'm going to break down this year is uh, Hercules Mataafa from Washington State. That kid's basically Solomon Thomas reincarnated. Beautiful. Okay, good. You got one. You got one that we. Charles, you've kind of had an eye on you want dibs on, or are you waiting and evaluating? Uh, I don't. I, there's no chance Charles has watched a single uh, Washington State game yet. No, I haven't. I've only <laughs> I, I've, I've only watched like Lamar Jackson in depth, and then like some of Baker Mayfield and Josh Rosen. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, cool. I will say this: it's been a fun running back class, and maybe you and I should. I mean, I've watched the heck out of Nick Nick Chubb, but you know, a guy. There's some guys on, you know, that maybe we should check out Sony Michelle together or, you know, there's there's some guys that are kind of fun just to watch that even though I don't know how great they're going to be. But what do you think of LeVon Coleman, um, Justice? Have you watched LeVon Coleman at all? Is LeVon Coleman the back from Washington? Yeah. Uh, I haven't really seen that much of him. The guy who's really impressed me honestly, is that receiver whose name I'm actually spacing out on right now. Um, but he was a guy. Pettis? Yeah, uh, Dante Pettis. Um, Dante Pettis is a guy who I, I, I this offseason I watched um, of the top probably 10 receivers that people were talking about, including guys like Auden Tate who really didn't have the stats for it. Uh, I went back and I watched like 15-yard catches and longer of these guys. Uh, Dante Pettis was the one guy who – he wasn't catching like you watch Kristen Kirk. All of Kristen Kirk's 15-yard passes that went 15 yards or more, they were basically all just like crossing routes that he took in in space, right? Um, Dante Pettis right. was the only guy who consistently caught those passes, you know, 15, 20, 25 or deeper yards down the line of scrimmage, and he was a guy who won at the catch point consistently, like to the point where New Hopkins is a stretch, right? Um, but Right. Stylistically, the comparison was going to be there for that. Um, the one thing that I didn't realize is I didn't realize his speed because he really never put himself in a position where he was catching these bombs like 
you know, we saw we saw yeah. John Ross do that in that same offense. Um, he was doing more contested catches than anything else. It wasn't until probably two, three weeks before the season that I realized uh, people were having a conversation on Twitter and that he he ran, you know, low four fours, high high yeah. high high uh, four threes. I didn't realize that, and then you see him break uh, the Pac-12 punt return record for for touchdowns. Uh, early on, he's having a dominant year for Washington, so he's the guy that. I kind of bookmarked as like, hey, this might actually be like a first round pick that no one's really talking about. And once he runs, he might have that, you know, that Will Fuller bump where he ends up he ends up being kicked into being a first round pick after people yeah, had him as a Daisy type of guy. He can track the ball for sure, and that's that the Dante that DeAndre Hopkins comparison in that realm makes sense he's very fluid like brandon lloyd is fluid at the catch point and brandon lloyd was a slow runner at least he was very quick but he didn't have that deep speed he got on top of people fast and then he was just the most amazing ball tracker i've ever seen just despite the fact that he was a bit of a problem child and couldn't really couldn't really handle his uh his business off on and off the field at least in the locker room and and on the field you know off the field on a consistent basis but when you see it, when you can make that comparison to a guy who, to me, you know, Lloyd was a troubled ball catching artist. I would say that Pettis certainly has that, uh, has that ball tracking ability. And I'm just wondering is Don, is Pettis related to the former angels outfield Gary Pettis by any chance? Cause that would be interesting. Cause Pettis as a center fielder for the California angels was an amazing ball tracker as a as a center fielder who made some of the most acrobatic catches I remember when I used to watch baseball back in the day, so I'm interested it, to see it if anybody that, knows uh, that. Gary, Gary Pettis is his father. Go figure. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been good. We're about to flip it to our interview with. Uh, uh, former NFL player, current ESPN analyst Damian Woody, uh, which was a lot of fun. We talked about his uh, time in the NFL, his time uh, it, on the show, The Biggest Loser, and the time he ate 110 chicken wings. So we'll be right back with that after a word from our sponsors. For you, the listeners of Setting the Edge podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Justice can attest to it. After his wife left him for the 50th time, he was six years old with two 45-year-old sons that constantly bullied him. Audible helped help him find purpose in life as he downloaded the Al Davis biography on Audible and used it to help him motivate himself and make a better life for himself and his large adult sons. And he used it to motivate himself to find a job to pay the alimony payments. Really, Audible is the best. So once again, that's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. That's audibletrial.com slash setting edge. Help justice feed his family. And now we're back with our guest, Damian Woody. You can find him on Twitter, at Damian Woody. He's here, he's here uh, from ESPN. Say what's up to the people, Damian. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you guys doing? We're doing great today. Really glad that you could come on and talk to us. Uh, as after I tweeted at you, asked if you want to come on and uh, talk about if Tom Cable should be committed for conspiracy to kill Russell Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> man, he's he's trying to he's trying to turn water into wine in Seattle, man. So God bless him. I don't even know if that's water that that he's trying to over there. Like, <laughs> Ru- Russ, he, Russ was getting killed out there because I, I I know before the season I thought that. Just on paper, like the bar was really low, but I, I thought it was one of the better offensive lines that they had. And then Mike Daniels happened on on Sunday, so 
that that all of that was just crazy. Like, what do you what do you think about Tom Cable and the Seahawks just trying to get super athletes or defensive linemen and try to convert them into offensive linemen? Like, how how hard of a position switch is that? I think it's a slap in the face. To be honest with you, really. I mean, I think people don't understand um, how hard it is to play offensive line in the National Football League, and on top of that, uh, the transition that these guys are making just as offensive linemen coming from the college game into the pro game. A lot of these guys aren't even in three-point stance. I mean, think about that. A lot of these guys coming from these spread-type teams, they're in the two-point stance constantly. So now you got to get these guys um, to get in a three-point stance, something that they're not familiar to familiar with. And then you're asking – then you have to teach them concepts that they really have never really done in college. And so now you're going to ask – uh, you know, a, defa, a former defensive lineman to make the transition. That's a, it's a tough task. Um, I played next to um, a guy in New, in New York when I was with the Jets who was a former def- defensive lineman. His name was Brandon Moore. Hell of a player. Uh, but to just continue to think that, oh, well, we can convert defensive linemen and turn them into, you know, good offensive linemen. I mean, you're, 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 hitting, your, you're hitting your head against a wall, man. It's just not – it's just not to me. It's just not sound development, considering the investment that you made at the quarterback position. Especially like the other thing too, to me honestly, is like if you look at how deep the the two deep gets for for the NFL on the offensive line compared to the other offensive positions. Like running back, you're going in more than two deep. Receiver, you're going more than two deep. Quarterback, you're going more than two deep. Tight end, you're going more than two deep. But at offensive line, you're starting five. And you probably have three on the bench, and maybe one of those guys is inactive. So, like, just even just taking on a project to fill in one of those roles, it doesn't give you much leeway on like being able to mess up at all. Like, your margin of error is very small. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you got I've been saying this ever since the um, ever since they um, negotiated the 2011 CBA that the offensive line position um, has been criminally underdeveloped. I mean, you could just see the erosion uh, at that position in the National Football League uh, for a variety of reasons. Guys can't, they can't practice as much. Um, they're not allowed to hit as much, not only in the offseason, but during training camp. And, you know, listen, one thing that offensive linemen have to do is hit. You got to be able to hit people. And if you can't hit, you can't get the amount of reps that you've been, that you've been accustomed to getting, then it's going to reflect on Sundays. And that's what we see week in and week out. If you just look at the games, there's a lot of quarterbacks that are just running for their lives, whether it's Russell Wilson, Eli Manning. I mean, the list goes on and on where you just see a bunch of quarterbacks that just aren't getting adequately protected. Um, and it's going to cost a lot of people. It's going to cost a lot of people their investments at the quarterback position. Yeah, and we always talk about the supporting cast situation that we see for young quarterbacks. Like you, you go and watch that Texans Jacks game and a Jacks pass rush. That was okay. Last year they come out and they get 10 sacks and 10 quarterback hits in the first game. And I, I think pro football focus said the Texans offensive line, they gave up pressures on 31 of the 36 uh, pass attempts, which I mean, which is just unbelievably bad. Um, now, so what do you think is, I guess, missing in offensive line development coming from college to the pros because I've kind of just had this theory with the way that offense and specifically passing has gotten easier. I think defensive and and teams in general are putting their better athletes on that side of the ball to kind of compensate for the rules being slanted a little bit more in favor of the offense. So like when you look at 
the defensive linemen in the NFL today. Uh, I think a good example that got brought up uh, around draft Twitter back in the 2015 draft was if this was, you know, 1995, Eric Armstead would be a left tackle. In 2015, he's playing defensive end because that's where you put those type of guys. Like, so where do you think the disconnect is and why, you, why offensive line play has fallen off so much? Well, listen, I, I think, you know, I think with each passing year, the, the athletes are getting better and better. Not only on the defensive side of football, but if you look at offensive linemen, too. I mean, these guys are lean. They're, they're not the offensive linemen that, you know, that people have been accustomed to seeing in the past. These guys train all year round. They're focused. They're, you know, their regimen is really good. So the offensive linemen, the athleticism at the off- offensive linemen position um, has evolved as well. I think there's a couple there's a couple issues why offensive line has been underdeveloped. One, I think coaching is really lacking in the National Football League. Um, I was fortunate enough during my playing career where I had a couple, in my opinion, Hall of Fame-type coaches. I had Dante Skarnacki with the New England Patriots, and then I had Bill Callahan, who's now with the Washington Redskins. I think two of the best offensive line coaches that that people could really name out there. So for me, I feel fortunate and blessed that I had guys that – taught me the little things about playing the office line is is when, when you're talking about office line you you got to talk about it's the details that you put in show your feet your hand placement angles leverage you know all of those things are what make what makes really good office alignment if you don't have a guy that can teach you those things day in and day out and really emphasize that then you're never going you're never going to you know, get that guy's full potential out there. And you're never going to get five guys to play as one because that's what you got to have as a um, as an offensive line. And then two, I referenced this earlier, is um, just how the CBA is set up. It, there's just not enough time, whether it's the off season or during the season, where you can really develop these guys. Again, these guys are coming from systems in college where it's just not conducive for really good offensive line play in the National Football League. So basically these guys have to be retaught from the ground floor how to play the position. And um, and again, if you don't have the coaching, it shows up on Sunday. And again, like I've said, like I said earlier, you're seeing it every single week. All you have to do is just turn on the TV and just watch. Just watch the offensive line. That's what I really tell, you know, a lot of people, watch the offensive line. I know everyone wants to watch the quarterbacks and Wide receivers, and rightfully so, because that's what people pay the money to see. But if you really want to see where the game is won and lost, watch the offensive line and watch how many offensive lines out there really, really struggle. So you brought up coaching, and one of the interesting things to me is that a lot of people talk about these converted guys and things like that, but Tom Cable has had his hands on eight guys who were drafted in the top 100 and were on rookie deals while he's been in Seattle. Um, He has the assistant head coach tag. Uh, attached to him, even though he's the offensive line coach at the same time. I don't want to get you in trouble or anything, but I was just wondering if there was like a head coach, a DC, an assistant head coach that has ever had to or or been known to coach a position, and because of that label slapped on him, he was kind of uh, he was kind of spread too thin a little bit because it almost seems like Tom Cable's number one role in Seattle is being like the backup head coach, and his number two role is developing this offensive line. Um, did you ever ha- have a situation like that? Did you ever see that happening in the NFL? Well, no. Well, listen, when I was with when I was in New York with the Jets, I mean, my offensive line coach Bill Callahan, he was also um, the assistant head coach. So, um, and he, you know, he was able to perform his duties very well. So, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily about the label that the guy has. It's, to me, the, 
It's more about can you teach? Are you a really are you a good teacher? Really, that's what coaching is all about. Can you teach and get guys to buy into uh, whatever you're trying to sell? Um, and that's what that's that's really the the one of the biggest things that any good coach that I've ever been around, whether it's coach you know whether it's Coach Belichick or Dante Scarnecchia or Bill Callahan, um, Eric Mangini. I mean, I could go on and on with some of the really good coaches that I had, but the the theme the 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 you know the theme that all those guys had they were really good teachers. I don't know Tom Cable personally, but all I can go all I can go with is the body of work, and the body of work tells me that that's the one unit in Seattle that just hasn't been able to get it done. You know, and and listen, I wouldn't put it all on Tom Cable because you also got to look at how Seattle has allocated its resources. They put a lot of resources into their defense. Obviously, they put a lot of resources into Russell Wilson, um, and so you can't pay every you can't pay every position. You can't pay everyone. So somewhere along the line, there's a position out there that's going to come up short, and it just seems like to me, the offensive line position is is just coming up short. Yeah, it's just ridiculous, honestly. And uh, I think we can kind of use it as a nice uh, a nice lead into our que- a first question from Ethan Hammerman at Ethan Ham on Twitter. Uh, he wants to know what was it like to play under uh, Skarnecchia and what makes him such a great developer of offensive line. Now, you already said that he was a good teacher, but what were like some of the finer points that he really focused on? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that makes um, Coach Skarnecchia great is he never let the small things fall to the wayside. Every day it was, it was something different. Every day was a small detail that he was focusing on. Um, and he was hammer. He would constantly hammer you on the little things. Again, you can't. You have to build your foundation on something, and you what you build your foundation on are the the small details. That's that's always been the building block to you know becoming a a great player. So for me, I was drafted to to New England, and I was a first round pick. But he didn't treat me like a first round pick. I mean, he was constantly on me. He taught me the game. He was barking at me all, you know, all the time, but it made me a better player. And I actually, when I left New England, I took all of, all of those teachings and all the things that he, you know, that he, um, that he instilled in me, I took it to Detroit. I took it to, to the jets, but he was really good at, you know, uh, hands, you know, feet, leverage, angles, blocking schemes, like he really just had a he really had a a good idea of how those things should be taught, and um, you know, there's just not a lot of coaches out there like him. To be honest with you, I've been I've been around a lot of coaches, whether it be you know professional or in college, um, and trust me, there there aren't a lot of really good teaching coaches out there. Who who had a good reputation when you were in the league? I mean, you mentioned uh, Callahan, Skarnecchia. Who who are some of these other offensive line coaches? Because you you hear people say that offensive line coach is probably the most important positional coach on the field, uh, mm-hmm. but we don't hear those names very often. Um, let me see. Uh, Howard Mudd, who was an offensive line coach for a long time with the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, wow. Let me see. Uh, Mike Tice is, a, is, you know, has been, you know, one of the guys that's been mentioned as a, you know, pretty good offensive line coach. Um, 
uh, the coach in the coach in Dallas. I and I can't re- I can't remember his name right now, but he's he's been a, you know he's been he's been talked about as a really good offensive line coach. Um, George Warhop, who's the offensive line coach down in Tampa Bay, um, is, is mentioned a lot. So uh, those are the guys that that um, that to me are, are some of the finer offensive line coaches in the National Football League. Uh, yeah, and I think that as you've kind of transitioned from playing to uh, now commentating on the game and giving analysis for ESPN, this is a question from our, our pal Arif Hassan at Harif Hassan NFL. What is it about offensive line commentary that you hate the most, and what good things do you see in modern offensive line media discussions? Oh, what do I hate the most? Um, that's a good question. What do I what do I hate the most? I I I personally feel like a lot of people, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people who cover football uh, don't always know exactly what's going on in the field, right? So you you see people misdiagnose a blocking play when they're breaking it down or you know we've seen jeff schwartz on twitter he's gotten to it with like pro football focus guys and have you noticed some of that like people just flat out not knowing like their x knows up front yeah i mean people just um yeah absolutely people don't know they don't recognize um schemes and and what and how people are trying to block it i think sometimes people just look at oh you know uh, you know, it's a run to the right. This guy misses block, so he gets a minus. Well, you got to understand the big picture. You got to understand schemes. What 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 type of play are they running? Because that guy that you gave a minus to, that prob- that's probably the same guy who was doing his assignment, but somebody else messed it up. So I think with the offensive line play, you really got to understand concepts, blocking schemes, um, to really understand how you can truly grade an offensive lineman. Um, what I, what was the second part? What do I love about it? Yeah. What do you like about what you see about modern offensive line discussions in the media? Um, I like, I like, I like seeing, um, people talk about the athleticism at the offensive line because you always hear about, you know, wide receivers and, you know, DBs and skill guys, um, as athletes, but I always tell people some of the best athletes on the offensive line, because think about this. You're all, you're you're in a mismatch situation almost every play against a defensive lineman. They're naturally more athletic than you, and to be able to, you know, if you're this is a passing league, be able to pass block 40, 50 times against a guy against a superior athlete and to shut them down the whole game. I mean, that's something that's to me should be a wild. That should be a wild moment, a wild something that should be celebrated and talked about a lot more. Um, so. Um, I love this. I love when people talk about the athleticism of the offensive line. Uh, I think more emphasis should be talked should be talked about as far as guys be, guys stoning these defensive linemen, man. Because again, like I said, these defensive linemen are a lot more athletic than than the offensive linemen out there. Yeah, and I remember this. There was a there was a play last year when the the Cowboys played. I want to say it was Philly in Dallas, and they ran a sweep to the left, and Tyron Smith got out in the open field and he was running like step for step down the field, 50 yards down the field with Ezekiel Elliott. And that's like, that, that's always one of those moments where you're just like, good God, like these guys are just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, tell, I'm, I'm telling you, these, these guys are becoming, it seemed like every year they're getting more and more athletic where you got a 320 pound guy running step for step with a guy, 
you know, who's 225 pounds. I mean, think about that. That's just, that's just crazy. You would, I mean, we've come a long way as an offensive line. Yes, yes, yeah. Human evolution is just crazy. And the advances in nutrition and all that stuff. Uh, but our friend Emery Hunt at Football Game Plan has a question for you. What was the biggest transition you had to make uh, going from knowing football to talking football? Um, well, the, it, in the media, you know, the, the, the difference when you join the media is you're not, it's not, people think that just because you did interviews well, you know, when you were a player that you can automatically go into the media and do well. You're not necessarily talk, you know, it's not necessarily just talking ball. Like you, like the amount of studying and, and, uh, and, and be able to put together your thoughts in a very concise way. That's huge when you get into the media. Uh, because the one thing that I, one thing that I know for a fact is fans can see right through people who don't know what they're talking about. If you're not putting in the work, if you're not watching the film, if you're not watching these games every week and really understanding what's going on in depth with the games, the fans can see right through you. So, um, you know, for me, the preparation, watching the game tape, being able to explain why teams are doing these things. Because for me, I get that's where I get real joy is being if I can make the fan experience easier, then I've done my job as as a as a you know as a member of the media. So I, you know, for me, I love that. So you were talking about how you wish that the uh, that the media would pay more attention to the offensive line. If if you were if you gave a suggestion to the media on like, okay, you should talk about X more during a game, like it, what, what would what would the improvements be? Um, I, I would just put the, I wouldn't say anything like, oh, well, watch this guard. No, I just, I just think that what a lot of fans understand is, yes, the quarterback position is very important, but games are won and lost in the trenches. I mean, when you, when you go, when you look at the teams in the playoffs, Nine times out of ten, those teams have some of the best offensive lines in football. The cream just really rises to the top. So, you know, I think there should be just more emphasis by people who are calling the games to have the fans really look at the guys in the trenches, the offense and defensive line, because you you that's where you see, to me, the most intriguing battles in a game. Charles, you alive? Oh, I was muted. My fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we lost you for a half a second. I was yeah, like, oh, I'll, no. I'll edit that out, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so what I was going to say is uh, let's kind of switch turns a little bit here uh, before we get you out of here and talk about some of the sillier stuff, or not sillier stuff, but just stuff that's kind of loosely related to football that, can, that we can laugh at. So this year is the five-year anniversary of the butt fumble. Uh, I mean, everyone should know. If you don't know, then I would assume you're just a child and you should probably go to class because you're just too young to be out here on Twitter. Uh, but what's the funniest in-game blooper that you remember from your playing days? Ooh, funniest in-game blooper. Uh, let's see. That's a good one. Um, the one that, that I think about, not for, not from your playing days, but just in general, is when the Colts snapped that ball on the fake punt against New England a couple of years ago, and they snapped they snapped and, the tray from the long snapper to the guy under center, and he just got tackled by the, the two Patriots defenders right there. Oh yeah, yeah, that that's a good one. I, I would say for me, wow, um, 
<laughs> man, I did. This was early in my career, I believe my 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 second my second year. Uh, man, I man, I snapped a, a shotgun snap so far over Drew Bledsoe's head. Uh, <laughs> Drew, you said one of those pockets. Anyone who's seen Drew Bledsoe, Drew Bledsoe was like a statue in a pocket. He was like 6'6", like 240, 245. And I snapped it so far over his head. And to see Drew Bledsoe run after the ball was just, in hindsight, it was just, it was crazy to see a quarterback that big and tall trying to chase, trying to chase down the ball. So, I mean, for me, I'm just, I, that was like the one I remember the most. All right, so I have I have a Drew Bledsoe question because I actually coached against him last year. He's up here in Oregon. He's coaching okay. the Suns, and uh, I was here for uh, one of the varsity, one of the junior varsity games. His youngest son, or his not not oldest son, I guess, uh, was getting his like two quarters in in like a JV game, right? So uh, I have this little five four, five two quarterback somewhere between that. He picks off his son, takes it to the house, and then for the rest of the half, Bledsoe. So just like unleashes on this little like five two five four guy. Does that sound? Is, is Drew Bledsoe really that big of a competitor? He also came to him after the game, shook his hand, and said something like, uh, "You you you got us on that one play, but you know we just had to come back at you. Like we we just couldn't let you have it." Is, is he that level of a competitor? And like, are all NFL players that level of competitors? Yeah, Drew is like petty like that. Like he's yeah he's, he's <laughs> yeah like that. That sounds like Drew man. Like listen now. I was, you know, his teammate for a couple years, man, and that dude loved football. He loved winning, and uh, that the story you just told me doesn't surprise me one bit because that's exactly how I remember Drew. <laughs> now, were you there when? How long had you been there when Tom Brady became the starting quarterback? Uh, I was, see, I was, I'm a, I was a year ahead of Tom. So Tom was when Tom was a rookie. I was in my second year. Okay. Did you did you know like when you saw him at practice or you were in the huddle with him, were you ever like, yo, this guy's kind of special? Or was he just another guy? No, no, no. When when Tom came in, he was fourth string, right? So he was behind Drew Bledsoe, Dron- John Freeze, and Michael Bishop at the time. Um, so nobody could like foresee like, okay, what he is now. But he, he did have the qualities that you that you look for in that that most special guys have. Uh, the dude was man. The dude worked his tail off. There's no question about it. He just he had a real command um, when he was in the huddle. And all you saw, man, he he just he just started slowly leapfrogging everybody. He leapfrogged Michael Bishop. Then next thing you know, he leapfrogged you know John Freeze. And then all of a sudden, um, that when we played the Jets and and, and uh, Mo Lewis hit Drew Bledsoe, knocked him out. That ushered in the Tom Brady era, man. So. That dude has always been like uber competitive. Do you remember? So you, oh, oh, go ahead, Chuck. Do you remember the first time you were in a huddle in a game? Like the first time Tom Brady came in? Like, was he nervous? Was he excited? Or it, it was just like business is yeah. easier for him? No, no, no. I mean, listen, he, he, he was absolutely a little bit nervous. I mean, listen, they, right. you're coming in a big spot, you're playing a divisional opponent uh, against, you know, the New York Jets. So. Um, yeah, obviously he was a little nervous, but the more Tom played, um, and, and early in Tom's career, we didn't ask him to go out there and, w- and win games. You know, he, it was just more just don't lose them. Um, so, but as the season went on, you could tell his confidence just start growing more, more and more to the point where it's like, man, this dude, 
we got something special right here. This dude is going to be nice. And, uh, you know, that, that first year, man, we went to, we went to the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl. So, you know, he tasted success early. Um, but, but the thing that makes him so special is he didn't let it get to his head. He always kept that chip on the shoulder that, you know, I'm six round 199th pick in the, in the 2000 NFL draft, man. And he's still like that to this day. So when did when did that moment happen? Because I know so like Green Bay and Seattle just happened. Martellus Bennett was a big free agency signing. Uh, there was what some might have thought was a cheap shot at Aaron Rodgers. Martellus Bennett gets up and takes a cheap shot after the play to protect his quarterback. It's a 15-yard flag. But then after the game, you hear Rodgers talk about how it felt good for him backing him up. He feels like it's really his teammate. Like he ended up becoming like one of the guys like week one basically, right? Um, mm-hmm. when, when did that really happen with like Tom? Like you were saying, where it clicked and where you're like, this guy might actually be special and more than just like a game manager. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it was one game. It was. You could just tell, like during the season, um, we just started. We started putting games together. We started off kind of rocky that first year. Then we started putting get, putting games together. Um, it was you know it was one of those you know we. Beginning of the season, we you know we had, I think we were like one in one in three or something, and we we won against uh, the Indianapolis Colts, and then we won against the, the the San Diego Chargers when like when our backs were against the wall. Once we won like those games early in the season, that's when we things just started clicking. You know, not only for Tom but for the whole team. You know, we beat the New Orleans Saints who were really good at the time at home. Um, we played against the St. Louis Rams, with the greatest show on turf. They came, they came to Foxborough. We end up losing the game, but we were like, man, okay, we just lost, but we went blow for blow with the greatest show on turf at home. So that was that was another building block for us. And then you know, next thing you know, um, I mean, listen, that whole season had so many crazy moments. The Tuck rule game against the Oakland Raiders. Uh, we go to we go to Pittsburgh in the AFC Championship game. Tom Brady gets hurt, goes down. Drew Blessel comes in, wins the game for us, and then obviously the Super, you know Super Bowl thirty six. We played the the greatest show greatest show on turf again in a rematch and ended up winning the game. So that season had so many moments, so many different things happened. Uh, but man, our confidence just kept building with each passing game during that season. That's awesome. That's that's such a cool story. Uh, now, I want to kind of switch it and take it away from football completely. Just smooth transition, not awkward at all. Uh, so you were on the show The Biggest Loser in 2014 and ended up mm-hmm. losing over 100 pounds. And I, I remember I used to watch that show with my mom all the time. And what what was it like being a part of the show? Like, what was the hardest part of the entire challenge aside from, like, being away from your family for a part of the time? Um, well, for me, the hardest part was the training regimen was totally different than what I was used to doing. You know, in football, everything is short bursts. Everything is power, speed, all those type of things. But when I did The Biggest Loser, it was literally everything was cardio, long distance, like that type of stuff. That's the stuff that I wasn't used to doing because, you know, as an athlete and especially as a football player, Everything is for basically five seconds, five, six second bursts because that's what a play is. And then you, you know, you hold back up and then you got another five, six second burst. But during, you know, during the biggest loser, 
I had to, I was doing cardio for hours and hours a day. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my whole life. Who was your trainer on the show? Was it Jillian? No, no. Jillian was, uh, wasn't on the show. The, the year I got there, it was the first year they, they had made changes. So I had a, a guy by the name of uh, Jesse Pavelka. He was only there for one season. Um, but the format changed a little bit. So um, they had what, what was called Comeback Canyon. So once you got eliminated from the show, you didn't know it. But um, you were th- you th- you were thinking that you were going home, but they they secretly brought you to an offsite facility where um, Bob Harper trains you to get you back in the game, basically. So you trained offsite, and then the next person who got eliminated, they would come, and then y'all would go head to head for a week, and if you kept winning, you basically would earn your spot back on the, back on the ranch. But see, for me, um, my body type was like really different from everyone else's. Um, like I didn't even I had the least amount of weight to lose out of everyone on the show. So I actually hit my weight while I was on the show. And so once I once I once I officially got eliminated, I was already at my weight. So you just you were cool. I was cool. Yeah. Once I hit my weight, man, I was just like. <laughs> Okay, I'm good. Like I just, I really put it in cruise control. So, cause I knew, um, cause when they do the show, basically you do all these medical tests um, before the show and during the show, um, and they do like all your, you know, body fat and all that type of stuff. So, once you kind of hit that number, you're good. You like, you just, you're good. <laughs> so I hit mine. I hit mine while I was still technically on the show. So once I hit it, I was just like, okay, I don't care if I get eliminated. I'm good. I've like I've hit my number. All right, hold up. So do 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 you get the same check if you're eliminated as you do if you keep going? No, I mean once you're once you're eliminated and off the show, then you know, then you you stop then you stop getting paid. So uh, that those checks couldn't have been that good then. <laughs> if you're I mean, listen, I mean, they're not NFL checks. I can tell you that. <laughs> they're not. They're not NFL checks. But they were okay, man. But it just got to the point where I was out in California, man, for four and a half months, almost five months, something like that. And once I hit my number, man, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to come home now. So I just put in a cruise control. You have any anything you learn on the show that you still use in your everyday life? Oh, absolutely. Like I like I know like the the food aspect, the nutrition aspect. That that was like the biggest thing for me. I knew I could lose the weight. I just wanted to get, you know, I just really wanted to get honed in on the nutrition aspect. And that's what I really did. That's what to me, that's what I took away, along with the fact that okay, I lost it once, so now I know I can lose it again if if need be, if I was ever to get back to that point which I'm not. But I would always tell myself, okay, I've done it one time. I can do it again. Right. And uh, I think that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing with people is, you know, the biggest fear is people don't think that they can do it. Where for me, I'm like, okay, I've done it already. Yeah. And I remember when I, I, I only played D3 ball, but when I remember when I stopped playing and I feel like when you first, when you first stop playing after you've played for so many years, you kind of take a break and you don't work out as much as you used to. 
And then yeah, and it catches up to it, you. It catches up real quick. Because I remember the first time I, it had been a couple months since I had gone to the gym, and I tried to just lift like how I'd been when I was playing, and I, I, I almost got hurt. Like that 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 drop off is real and it's quick too. Oh, absolutely, man. Because like when you're playing when you're playing sports, you know whether it's football or you know whatever it is, basketball, swimming, whatever. You're you're burning so many calories that it really doesn't matter like what you eat you because you're just burning it off. But once you're done, if you don't change your eating habits, then all of a sudden all those calories start sticking to you like rice. And then next thing you know, man, you just start blowing up. And that's where they that's where it gets you. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure we we've all seen our fair share of people who have blown up. Whether it's pro, collegiate, high school, after they stop playing sports. I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last question, food-related, from our friend Betts at Swole Tide. What's the most amount of food you have seen someone else consume during your playing career? Ooh. Man, I've seen, I've seen a lot, man. I remember one time when I was in um, – this was when I was at Boston College. And uh, I, me and the, the, the rest of the office line, we went to – I went to a restaurant, man, and we ate. I know me personally, I ate like, I think it was like a hundred, like a hundred and ten wings or something like that. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> like you talk about being young and dumb. Like it was crazy. Like I sat there, and we were all just kind of like seeing how long we could go before we start tapping out. But I think I, I I believe it was last I checked it was like 110. Jesus, I, I hear something. Uh, there was one time, uh, my friends and I, we tried to see who, we tried to see if anyone could complete the uh, 100 McNugget challenge, where you try to eat 100 McNuggets in an hour, and no one got it down. But I actually ended up winning eating. A- <laughs> I ate 89 McNuggets <laughs> in an hour. Really? Yeah, and uh. I, I got so sick, dude. I, I, I couldn't walk for a day. Like, I had to have somebody drive me back to my dorm. It, it was it was awful. Was it embarrassing? Uh, No, not really. <laughs> I was just mad that other people tapped out at, like, 50. Like, 50 or 60. Like, that's easy. I could wolf down that right, right. now. But like, once, once he right. started... Charles, Charles is walking around looking like he's in his second trimester talking about how <laughs> easy. I, I, I had cramps for almost a week after that, so... <laughs> Don't eat 89 McNuggets in one sitting. No, I think I'm going to pass on pass on that one. <laughs> uh, so before we let you go, anything that you're working on, you want to let the people know about uh, where they can find you, what you're working on? Listen, listen, man, um, you could follow me. My, my handle is the same, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. It's all the same, Damian Woody. So I encourage everyone to follow me on, on all of my social media. Um, I think I'm a pretty good follow on social media. So follow me on social media. Um, I'm going to have a podcast coming out soon. I'm not, you know, I'm going to leave it, you know, those details, but it's going to be sports. It's going to be politics. It's going to be a little bit of everything. So, um, you know, I try to be a well-rounded person. So just be on the lookout for that, along with any other projects that will be coming up in the near future. Awesome. Uh, So this has been a lot of fun. That'll conclude episode 46 of Setting the Edge. We'll be back on Monday with a recap of the Week 2 games. Talk to you guys then.